If you have a Bible this morning, or if you have a phone, apparently we're encouraging phones a lot more in these days in our church, uh, you can press yourself on over to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing on in a series in which we're exploring and discovering sort of what we might call the essence of Jesus' teaching that comes to us through what is known as a Sermon on the Mount. And to be a little bit honest with you this morning, when we come to passages like these that we're going to read in Matthew chapter 5, I, I have a little bit of trepidation about preaching on them because it, it would seem that if I preach them correctly and in the way that Jesus taught them, it would stir the pot just a little bit for us as people in the world. And I, I don't mean this sort of superficially or on the surface. I'm serious about my trepidation of teaching sometimes the things that Jesus taught. Because the things that Jesus taught ended up getting him executed. Right? Like, this is, a, this is a very historical, physical reality. Not everybody who heard Jesus was really impressed and attracted to him is that the things that he taught were really difficult and challenging and they pushed against some of our, and the people in his day, sort of the way that they thought and the way that they framed the world. It pushed against the conventions of politics and leaders and sort of social structures and finances and all of these types of things and they continue to do it for us today. And as we read these words... And as we preach on them, I, my heart's desire and my prayer has been this week that you would not hear them coming from me, but you just hear them coming from Jesus this morning. Because he is the one who is teaching and shepherding the church as he has for the past 2,000 years. Get mad at Jesus if you want to get mad at somebody this morning. But let's read together Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 43 through 48. Jesus teaches us this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the word of God for the people of God. This morning, amen. Jesus we submit ourselves to your teaching this morning. Help us think in new ways. Give us courage to live in new ways. For your honor and glory, amen. I had knocked him to the ground. And as he lay helplessly in front of me, vulnerable and disheartened, I stood over him, screaming in his face. It was the only time in my life that I can recall standing over someone like that with such intensity. But 
scoring the game-winning goal against your opponent, biggest, your school's biggest rival just brings out the emotions in you that you just didn't even know that you possessed. It was my senior year of high school. We were one of the top-ranked boys soccer teams in the area and surely were a lock to win a league championship that year. But none of that mattered as our biggest rival came to our home field that Thursday evening. That game was about pride. It was about bragging rights. It was about being the dominant school in the league. It was about defeating our rivals. It was about defeating our enemies. And let me tell you, we loved defeating our enemies. We loved obliterating our rivals in high school. As the game played out that Thursday night, it was a rather tight game. It shouldn't have been, but it was. It was a rivalry game after all. We were tied 1-1 late in the game, and our team had an opportunity to go up by a goal. There's a free kick down in our opponent's end of the field. Sorry for those who may not know what soccer is all about, but scoring is really important in it. And during this free kick, the ball sailed in the air, and I remember jostling for position, knocking down my opponent completely legally, and there was nothing wrong with it. And the initial shot that I made against the goalkeeper was saved, but he produced a rebound in which I kicked into the back of the net, and my team burst with excitement. We had gone up two one, I had just landed the blow that was going to knock out mighty Goliath on our home field. And as my memory tells me, the stands exploded with enthusiasm, when in reality, it was probably just our moms and dads sitting up, kind of clapping. But amidst all of the celebratory noise swirling around the field, I can still remember standing over my opponent to this day, screaming in his face, let's go! I was so emphatic, in fact, that one of my teammates grabbed my arm and pulled me away from that moment. Like, you need to chill out just a little bit. My emotions, they were too high. Not only had our team defeated our biggest rival, I had scored the winning goal. And nothing makes sports more thrilling than beating your rival, beating your greatest enemy. It is the mixture of their failure and your success that creates the exuberance we experience when triumphing over our enemies. We love our enemies. We love watching our enemies fail. We love triumphing over our enemies. We love our enemies. But this isn't the kind of love of enemy that Jesus invites us into in our passage this morning when he spoke these words to his disciples on that mountainside 2,000 years ago. You see, one of the realities and difficult questions that this passage forces us to ask, and it's an uncomfortable question in a lot of ways for us personally, is this one. Who are my enemies? Who are my enemies? Answering this question is a confessional act. None of us sitting in this room are readily hopeful to reveal the people that we don't love. We aren't readily sitting here and, and name the people that we love to watch fail, but we do a little bit, right? There are some folks in, that we know in our community or perhaps in the world that we love to watch fail. There are some people in the world that we love to triumph over. 
we love to think to ourselves like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not that. I'm better than that. And there's some in this room that we just know that there are enemies among us. But there are many perhaps in this room that may feel as though you don't have any enemies. But the difficulty though in thinking that way is that if you cannot name your enemies, you cannot live out these words of Jesus. Until we invite our enemies into our homes or treat them as our neighbor or love them as we love ourselves, we do not live these words of Jesus. Until we regard them, dwell with them, and embrace them as God regards, dwells, and embraces them, we cannot live these words of Jesus. And obedience here requires with identification of who our enemies are. And so the uncomfortable question must be asked to us this morning, who are your enemies? There are two kinds of enemies I think that we ought to consider this morning. First, there are the obvious ones. (laughs) There are those people who are just obviously our enemies. They're the people that you see daily bump into on the street corners in your community, You see them driving around the streets of our city and they get your blood boiling. They get your emotions all sort of revved up. They're that person who walks into the office and you just get this internal just tightening of emotions because you just don't want to be around them. Maybe there's somebody who have wronged you or have hurt you, but these are the obvious people that we think of as our enemies. But there's a second kind of enemy that we must consider here. A good starting point in identifying the second kind of enemy comes in in how we might contrast and how Jesus likely contrasted the two concepts of enemy and neighbor. You see, in Jesus's world, enemy often meant Roman citizen or Roman soldier or Gentile. That is somebody who is not of the same ethnic or nationalistic background as me. And neighbor often meant in Jesus' world as friendly Jew. That wasn't all Jews necessarily for Jesus or in this world. It just meant the people who were sort of aligned with the things that I thought we should be about as a people. That is to say that there is this ethnic, nationalistic, theological, social, and political dimension to the concept of enemy and neighbor in Jesus' world. The second kind of enemy, they're the ones who are excluded by our love for those who are like us. That is, we love people who are like us so much so that it functions as an exclusive act that people cannot be a part of. We love the people like us. We do not love or extend love intentionally to the people who are unlike us. That doesn't mean we necessarily have animosity or anger towards them. They're just excluded because they're not a part of our in-group to help bring this to focus and to let you be upset perhaps with someone else if you get upset by this, I want to quote to you perhaps the premier New Testament scholar in North America, Scott McKnight, and some of the words that he teaches about enemies. He says this, we've all got enemies. I want to suggest America's enemy is the Muslim countries and undocumented immigrants, and Christians have joined in. The enemy of the white person is the black person, and the enemy of the black person is the brown person. The enemy of the Christian Republican is the Democrat, and the enemy of the Christian Democrat is the Republican. That's awesome. No, it's not awesome. 
the enemy of the morally conservative Christian is the gay man and woman. We've all got enemies. Perhaps they're not something that we feel internally, but structurally and in who we are, we all have enemies. And Jesus' words confront us with this reality. And if you're sitting in here and you're thinking, well, none of those people are my enemies, you don't quite get the radical teaching and claim that Jesus is making in the passage. You see, in the world that we live in, we've been shaped to want to defeat and obliterate or maybe just avoid our enemies. But Jesus says here, he says the citizens of his kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom of God are not to do these things. They are, in fact, to do quite the opposite of these things. They are to love their enemies. And here Jesus reveals to us three things that happen when we do this, when we, as his disciples, love our enemies. The first is this. When we love our enemies, we reveal the character of God. When we love our enemies, we reveal the character of God. Perhaps the most striking verse that comes to us in this passage is the last one, verse 48, where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And these words are a bit startling to us because they appear to set the bar so high that we can never quite achieve them or obey them. Be perfect as God is perfect? How can I do that? Does Jesus even know my heart? Does Jesus know me? Does he know the people sitting in the pews next to me? If this is the standard, why should I even bother trying to obey his teaching? See, the word translated as perfect here is the Greek word teleos. Turn to your neighbor and say teleos. That's good. It's a good Greek philosophical word. But the word literally translated means whole or complete or mature, right? And what stated with this sort of definition in mind, Jesus' words here could be stated as such, love as completely as your Father in heaven loves completely. In our passage this morning, Jesus uses imagery to get across this point. God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God, in other words, indiscriminately loves all people. And what distinguishes God's love is that he makes the sun rise on the evil and that he sends rain on the unrighteous. Those who are considered to be God's enemies, God shows goodness towards. And we see this expressed in the life of Jesus We see Jesus extending him in truth to a Samaritan woman at a well. Perhaps we might think of the Samaritan woman at the well of somebody who has a different theological perspective on God. Perhaps in our context, it might be a Muslim woman at the well. Jesus extends himself in truth to her. We see him, a Jewish rabbi, heal the servant of a Roman soldier's. That is, an occupying military force that his people hated, he heals the servants of those people. We see Jesus call to himself sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, all those who are to be excluded from the people of God. And over and over and over again, we see in the person of Jesus the revelation that God loves his enemies. We see over and over and over again that God is for people, not against people. 
We see over and over and over again that God is working tirelessly to reconcile all people to himself. And there is no clearer picture of this reality and God's love for God's enemies than Jesus hanging on a cross, uttering words of forgiveness over his executors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And every time we love our enemies, we bear witness to the world what the love of God is actually like. It is indiscriminate. That's why Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Funky imagery. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We, as disciples of Jesus, we overcome evil with love as God does in Christ. Church, we must love as completely as God loves. And as we engage in this enemy love, Jesus says we demonstrate that we are children of God. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's this phrase, and it's all, this is sort of Bible study reading tip for you. If you ever see the phrase, so that, or in order that, it's this Greek word, henna, which means these two ideas, one that comes before that word and the one that comes after that word, they are connected, and you need to read these things together. Love of enemies reveals that we are children of God. We ought to love our enemies because that's what our family does. The other morning, I was eating breakfast, and Levi is at this stage in his life where he just wants to do everything that I do exactly. And so when I feed him literally the same breakfast, but put it in his own dish with his own utensils sitting in his own chair, he does not want to do that. And so he'll take his breakfast, dump it onto my plate, get out of his chair and try and sit on my lap and because he wants to eat the same exact thing that I am eating. So the other morning, I prepared a very Filipino breakfast. Reheated rice from the night before. <laughs> With some soy sauce, of course. That's how we Filipinos do it. A couple of fried eggs cooked over medium and slices of, yes, you guessed it, Spam, spam. Any spam lovers in the house? My people, let's go. Any spam haters in the house? Yes, okay, all right, we will convert you over time. It's so good, it's so good. It's like poor people islander food that we eat in the Philippines. But he watched me take a bite of a slice of spam, then proceeded to get his own slice of Spam from the plate and take a bite. And in that moment, it dawned on me that I was allowing my toddler, two-year-old son, to eat Spam for breakfast. <laughs> Perhaps not the best choice. But I looked at him and I said, Levi, Kaluzas, eat Spam. You will be mocked. People will hate on you. But this is just something that we do. We eat Spam. We are Kaluzas. Spam. It's true. Ask any Filipino. They all eat spam. But as those 
who claim to be part of the family of God. We must love our enemies because that's what our family does. We are Christians. In his classic book, Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer writes these words, love is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. And it's so easy to sit in here and nod in agreement with Francis Schaeffer. Yes, this is the family business. We love our enemies, but this kind of love costs us big time and demands that we as followers of Jesus carry our crosses day after day after day. But as we love our enemies, we participate fully in the family business. And this kind of love has a particular quality, has many qualities, but one that I want us to just talk about briefly here for a moment this morning. See, the kind of love we're called to extend to our enemies should be given with no agenda other than love. One of the temptations for us as Christians and as the church is to utilize love as a strategy to achieve some greater purpose. If we love our neighbors, then maybe we can grow our church and they will come and our thing will be much bigger than what it is today. If we love our enemies, if we just kill them with kindness, maybe they'll see it our way. And so I'm gonna be really nice, but the strategy is to love and be kind so that they can come to my side. If I love my neighbors, they will be more like me. And when the goal isn't met, our instinct is to withhold love. Ah, it didn't work. (laughs) They're not coming to church. They're not agreeing with me. They're not on my side. But the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here doesn't operate that way. The love Jesus invites us into is hopeful, but not conditional. That is, we can hope that the love of enemies can and win people over to Christ, that it will transform their lives. We can hope that it creates peace between us and people that we have conflict with. We can hope that people's hearts will be aligned more fully with the purposes of God. But if those things don't happen, when they still put us on the cross, we don't stop loving or praying for our enemies. The love we have for enemies doesn't come with an agenda or with conditions, only as a free gift offered with hopeful expectation. When we extend ourselves, church, to our enemies with this kind of love, what we discover is that this kind of love has the potential to make our enemies our neighbors. Several years ago, I got myself into a little bit of hot water with a board member in our local church. I had um, apparently sent some articles or retweeted something or tweeted something about the issue of undocumented persons, a community often referred to as illegal immigrants. And the board member called me up on the phone and let's say it was not the friendliest phone call I've ever received in church from a board member and he wanted to have lunch to discuss our political opinions or ideologies, I guess, and how he wanted to teach me that pastors aren't supposed to talk about these things because in their congregations there's a variety of opinions. That is actually a piece of advice that I tend to follow. The tone in his voice was not gentle, but I accepted the invitation to go have lunch. You gotta, you know, 
face your maker at some point, I guess. So we went to get lunch and the conversation quickly dived deep into these tweets that I apparently had sent out that he took issue with. And I listened to him and he in turn listened to me. And as the conversation progressed, it was very clear that discussing sort of undocumented persons or illegal immigration as an abstract idea was getting us nowhere. So I decided to throw a little flesh on the issue, incarnate it a little bit in our church. I asked him this question. How does supporting your political position come across to the undocumented people who are members of our church? The question stunned him. There are undocumented people that are members of our church? They had never considered that reality before. As we continue to chat, the tone of the conversation shifted dramatically. The issue quickly became a person in his mind. And that changed everything about how he saw things. Without getting into too many details, I can tell you that over time, that board member and his family cultivated relationships with a family in our church who was undocumented. They invited them into their small group. They helped send their kids to camp and to elevate and to all these kinds of events when their family was struggling financially. Is that in his mind, this enemy had become a neighbor and he was going to love them to the fullest extent that he knew how. This, church, is what our love for enemies can do for us. They change enemies into neighbors. Many years ago, in an interview, uh, Dallas Willard, who's one of the great spiritual leaders of North America in the past century, uh, was asked, what advice would you give to a new pastor starting out in a new church or in a new ministry? And he suggested that they begin by preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, just to determine how many people in church still believed it. I find a lot of encouragement from this suggestion because it means I had similar thoughts as Dallas Willard, which is the craziest thing in the world to me. But our text this morning, it it doesn't mince words. I dug all week, what's the exegetical thing that's just so surprising and shocking that everybody will fall in love with? But it's just so plain. And yet it's so powerful. Love your enemies. It is the definitive mark of the Christian woman and man. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, does it mark our church? Does it mark our walk with Jesus? Do we enter the homes of those from different ethnic backgrounds as us? Do we share in fellowship over meals with people who have different religious and theological convictions? Do we meet with coffee with those who are on the other side of the political aisle and laugh and embrace afterwards because it doesn't matter. We love our enemies. Are there people groups that are excluded by our church and by our love because we're so inwardly focused on ourselves? Jesus' love for the ethnic and nationally different Roman soldier was radical. 
his offering living water to the woman at the well was who was theologically on the other side of the aisle. It was shocking. It didn't make any sense. This is why disciples come back in that story and like, how are you talking to her? You're not supposed to talk to her. We don't talk to those people. And Jesus' interaction with that woman is like, yes, even those people we give drink to. His dining with sinners was surprising to say the least. He shattered the enemy-neighbor distinction by his love. And we, church, have to do the same if we're gonna have the name Christian. The great Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, once wrote, there are two kinds of Christians, those who want to imitate Jesus and those who only want to admire him. Say that again. Two kinds of Christians, those who want to imitate Jesus and those who only want to admire him. And the invitation to us today is to imitate him in love of our enemies. Let's pray. Jesus, We don't want to follow a God that doesn't challenge us. <laughs> that means that you are no bigger than us. And we recognize and believe that the road to discipleship, the road to loving our enemies in this case is hard and challenging and it, it just explodes categories it challenges preconceived ideas and ways that we have thought about people and the world. It forces us to imagine that maybe there is this bigger, more beautiful thing that we call the kingdom of God that we can get caught up in. And so I ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace that we need to be your children he would give us the courage that we need to love in the ways that you call us to love. On our own, Lord, we cannot do these things. We cannot walk in your ways. But only by your grace and mercy can we learn to love our enemies and make them our neighbors. It's your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.
Church, as you are sent from this place, may your imaginations and love mirror the imagination and love of God. May you see people the way that he sees people. And in so doing, reveal his glory in the world. Go in his peace. Amen.